Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield and we'll see them up with... What you doing down here, you shawnee man? Hello, everyone. I trust you all enjoyed your FA Cup fourth round weekend. And you're very welcome to Monday Second Captain's Football Podcast. Owen, Ken and Murphy here. Hi, fellas. Hi, Owen. How are you? Hello there. Good. Hi, Karen. How are you? There's an unwritten rule that any lower league team who made it this far must have a few key character types just to jazz up the build-up and any potential giant killing story that's going to happen. It looked Sorry, like... Sorry, the, the, the image of the guy eating the pie just popped into my head there and it's refusing uh, to leave. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not talking about him. Okay. I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about the type of characters that Yeovil Town had on Friday Night Murph. Okay. Boy, did I get excited when I watched the build-up of this game. A lad who only three years ago was stacking shells at the local supermarket? Check. Mm-hmm. A Scottish striker who signs for the club on the day of the match and has to drive nine hours to ah, shake hands yeah. with his teammates and sit on the bench? Check. Yeah. And a manager steeped in the history of the club. Ideally with an inspirational backstory? <laughs> check, 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 check. Darren Way was a hard-tackling midfielder in the Oval until his playing career was cut short and he was involved in a near-fatal car accident. Really horrible stuff. He did a great interview before the started the coverage on the BBC. So I was excited. They had all the right characters, but the giant killing plot never quite got going as the FA Cup meandered along for another couple of days. One person, though, who enjoyed himself was TJ Brennan, emailed in to editor at secondcaptains.com to say, all right, lads, just wanted to share my story from my visit to the DW Stadium on Saturday to watch Wigan versus West Ham. Mm-hmm. I live in Manchester, headed up with a few lads from there. Hope you didn't try to buy a ticket at the ground. Oh, yeah, as Roy Keane once did. Uh, but I would say the FA Cup <laughs> is FA a different, Cup might is be different. Probably different. Horse yeah. of a different colour altogether. Yeah. At the start of the second half, Joe Hart, do you need to remind people about what Roy Keane did or would I, would I do this email first? No, he, well, no, he just ended up buying the season just, ticket just so, no, just he so didn't. the lad would stop talking to him. He didn't. He didn't. No, no he, turned, he turned up. He, he was told he had to buy a season ticket. That was he the only asked, way he could get he in. He asked for a ticket. They said, no, we can, no. And he said, well, give me a season ticket then. And they said, no. And he stormed off in a rage. No, <laughs> 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 so he didn't get into the game, did no, he? he didn't, no, he didn't. No. Wow. He, stormed, he stormed off. He thought, it, that story, he thought it was too stupid. And he and he went home rage, enraged. But a lot of people, if in his position, might have called ahead and said, "Listen, I'm thinking about dropping down to the game with you." More of his behaviour is that of a seventy-five-year-old than 
It was a little. When you think about it, it was a sidebar. It was one of those in-depth David Walsh interviews with Roy Keane, and that was just a little sidebar of a story of I don't know how he was Mm. interacting with the football world, and it was more probably more revealing than the interview, uh, the main body of the interview. But back to our email from TJ Brennan, who said, "As the start of the second half, Joe Hart ran towards the goal and clapped at the stand I was in. Being a United fan, I thought it would be appropriate to give him the wanker hand gesture. However, he stopped clapping and stared directly in my direction." directly in my direction <laughs> I continued until he turned around much to the amusement of my friends well Jack the lad here is TJ he's oh, not yeah. going to stop just because Joe Hart's staring at him yeah. probably the reason I was the only person doing it was because I was in the family stand <laughs> anyway I took credit for getting inside his head and managed to get the ticks as he calls Wigan into the next round up the ticks says PJ PS please give St. Peter's GA Manchester a shout out <laughs> a shout out has been given there TJ well done on abusing a professional footballer there for no particular reason from the family stand abusing yeah. Joe Hart I mean yeah. yeah I mean I don't know why I, I, it kind of seems to me like the family stand is what makes me think this is a story you know that's really worth reading out mm. if he wasn't in the family part of the stand then maybe I'd be like well I get the sense one here thought that maybe he was on his own or, sorry he was with like-minded people at the beginning of, of yeah. giving the gesture and by the end of it he realised I'm in the family stand here <laughs> nobody else is joining in but I've got to keep going because I'm, yeah. the, I'm, the, I'm the joker of the group <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you don't want Joe Hart to have that over you, you, no, know, you want Joe, Joe, that idea of Joe Hart having the upper hand on you and your interpersonal relationships with Joe Hart you can't stand that if you listen to this podcast I'm guessing you're a football fan right so you probably like the idea of an interview which takes you right inside the mind of a footballer playing on the biggest stage maybe well, check this out from Richie's latest players share conversation with the Irish centre half Shane Duffy. From being so confident at half time, like I was, and I was, the, I was in the toilet, like beating France one 0 here in, in the Euros. Like I was, I was like, and it, w- it wasn't even that hard. Like I was just like, an hour forty five of this and we're through, and then 15, 20 minutes of absolute madness, really, and went downhill from there, really. It was tough because I wanted to sort of still celebrate that we done we done well as a team and the, like, and then but then I'm always thinking I'm a bit embarrassed to like do it because it was my fault sort of. And so footballers have the same thought process at halftime as the rest of us do. They also have to go to the toilet, <laughs> and they also think we're going to beat the French. We were all in that stadium, Murph. Yeah. I wonder was Shane Duffy were Shane Duffy and his Irish teammates acting the same way as all the Irish fans there and actually singing out loud we're going to beat the French mm. or trying to book flights to Paris for the following <laughs> week I mean I'm sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure Shane Duffy thought ah the FAL probably had a lot yeah. I, do, I actually don't no, he doesn't to, have to worry about flights that's the part of the whole ah. uh, process I don't need to worry about interesting you said it was easy they felt it was easy in the first half yeah it well, was I mean, three quarters of the half was amazing. taken up by Jeff Hendrick feigning injury and walking very slowly that was, that was the second half was that the second yeah, half I don't think he was doing that no, I think it was, was he the time first wasting half. already time wasting before. Well, we scored after one minute. So. Yes, yeah, so there's a lot of time to waste. <laughs> Eighty nine minutes plus injury time. Jeff knew to, when to switch on, and oh, it was God. basically from the second minute on we were time wasting. He was great, uh, Jeff. Not Jeff Hendrick. Shane Duffy is who was interviewed by Richie Sadler. A uh, great reaction to that one. If you're signed up to the World Service and you missed that chat, go back to last Tuesday, January twenty third, and check it out. If you're still holding out, sign up today for Fiber Month. Secondcaptains.com. We're going to be bringing you loads more big interviews like that one throughout twenty eighteen. Let's report on some sport, please, Ken. So, um, I guess we should start with Pep. I keep getting like messages from Man United fans demanding to know when the when why are people not attacking Pep? The media is against Manchester United. It's so obvious. Why can't you see it? 
uh, and, and and look at the way Pep behaves. What a disgrace! If this was a Manchester United manager, dot dot etc etc. You know what I mean? What sort of stuff are they talking about? I, don't, I honestly I don't, I don't know, but it's get it's really it's really it's slightly weird. condescending attitude to post match interviews. Well, sometimes. The, well, there was. I <laughs> it's mean, not the in, greatest scene in the world. In this instance, the um, the running onto the pitch at the end of the game to berate the referee again. Although once again, I have to say, Pep just manages to come across as the good guy, who 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 loves the game not wisely but too well, and when he when he explodes with anger and berates a referee, probably just saying really nice, encouraging things, but in such a way as to make it appear that he's absolutely berating the referee. You're such a great referee. You think he's Nathan Redmonding the exactly. referee? Exactly. Right. You're, you're, you're this better than this. I don't think so. You deserve better than this. You should give yourself better. Than but this. what he was doing was uh, he actually did the thing. You know the the Mascherano thing of you're bawling into the referee's face and your your face is beginning to go purple with rage, but your hands are behind your back like this as you're doing it, like almost as though you're actually wearing handcuffs. You're not. It's imaginary handcuffs. It's like your hands are kind of trying to get out of the imaginary handcuffs, like shaking against them, like trying to pull them apart, even though they don't exist. And you're uh, as you ball into referee's face, just so you, everyone can see that you're keeping yourself under control. And, and a lot of Manchester United fans, I think, were watching that. Not all of them, but there's a few of them were watching that, and the tinfoil is rustling a little bit in their heads, and they're like, "I can't believe that I, I can't believe the media are going to watch this, and, and no one's going to raise no one's going to raise an issue." Look at what Guardiola's doing. You know, that's the referee there. The referee is the soul, the heart and soul of English football, and Guardiola is shouting and screaming into the face of the heart and soul of English football. When is this going to be... When is he going to be pulled up on this? You know? Media silence. And I, I've got to say, I, I, I totally 100% sympathise with Guardiola. <laughs> because, you know, sure, while this may have looked like a, you know, 20 million a year... Um, guy who who's lost the run of himself berating a, a poor referee who just happens to have found himself you know in the in a difficult situation and Guardiola should know better yeah sure I think but then again what's he standing up for Owen? he's standing up for the players as he says more specifically his players I would say no please protect the players not the Manchester City players all the players the only thing they can do is that protect the players or it will happen again. The players are the artists. You have to take care of them. That's why you're here and that's why I'm here. For them. The players. And so what he's saying is, we've got to stop this. This absolute nonsense that's that's happening. So he's lost Leroy Sané uh, to a horrific tackle by uh, Joe Bennett who you know tries to... Well, it looked as though he was he was clearing him out. It looked as though he was. I mean, as Bennett has actually apologized for it. Um, Bennett put out. I just want to apologize to Leroy Sané for my tackle today. I tried to stop the counterattack and completely mistimed my attempt. What he means is he was trying to trip him up. Sané was away, uh, and, he, and he's like, okay, "I'm bringing him down. I'll take the yellow card for the team here." But he got there a little bit too late and went straight through Sané's left ankle, which is planted. You know, it's one of those the ankle bends 110 degrees kind of thing. And uh, Sonny's going to be out, uh, Pep says, for at least two or three weeks, maybe a month, maybe less than that, of course. These Manchester City players have shown a lot of resilience in the face of these injuries. Um, but it was a horrific tackle. And the reason that I kind of feel, I mean, you know, we, we've spoken about these sort of dangerous tackles. It, it should have clearly been a red card, 
you know, the referee gave a yellow card. I don't know if that meant there couldn't be a VAR or do Cardiff not have it or... They don't have it, yeah. Yeah. Because there was another incident that... Sane had a goal disallowed. Sorry, Sane didn't have the goal disallowed, but he was a judge to so be Bernardo Silva, yeah. position. And it was a, a clear and obvious case where you should have VAR, and it just wasn't there. Which I, We're going to get onto the whole VAR thing anyway, but it just seems a bit strange that it's available at some games in the same round of a competition where it's not available in others. Yeah. Um, I mean, Guardiola saying, do I fear serious injuries? Of course. Every team can play how they want. If they decide to play that way, perfect. But there is one man in black, and he has to decide what's correct and incorrect. When you say, why don't you win the four titles? I need the players to win the four titles. So the four, I mean, the quadruple that City are still on for this season. Um, and obviously they, they did manage to uh, knock out Cardiff in the end. But the reason I kind of feel, and even even the, the German national team actually tweeted Cardiff saying, please, hey, Cardiff City FC, just letting you know we have a really important tournament in summer. Please don't hurt our players. Thanks, Die Mannschaft. Hashtag insane. You don't like that one, Murph? You don't like the Germans' <laughs> interjection here, no? Uh, yeah, Twitter bans. Oh, oh yeah, I'm yeah. Not sorry, entirely you, you sure. You know, you remind me of Neil Warnock. The only difference between you, that, and I find that extremely. Insulting. The only difference I mean, I, between you and Neil Warnock is that you have eyebrows, and Neil Warnock doesn't anymore. Hmm. I'm not sure what happened. Maybe it was some dressing room banter that got out of control. <laughs> but uh, one way or another, um, Warnock and his perfectly smooth forehead. Um, were contemptuous of Pep Guardiola squealing, uh, and he tried to point out a few home truths to uh, to Pep, who evidently wants to have things all his own way. And Warnock said, "City dished it out a bit as well." He's in England. What do you expect? Said Cardiff manager Neil <laughs> Warnock. I suppose when you're like that, you want everything to be nice and pretty, but you don't get that in England. You get different challenges, don't you? And there was just something about this that annoyed me so much that I'm prepared to give Guardiola a complete pass for what was what would in usual uh, usual circumstances be appalling behaviour. You know, you don't you, you can't go on the field as a 47 year old man who doesn't have the excuse of of having been running around like a lunatic for you know the last 90 minutes and scream into the referee's face. You can't do that, but. When you're the when you're managing against Neil Warnock's Cardiff and they're just trying to break your players' legs and the referee hasn't done anything about it at all and you got Warnock there snickering away, clearly loving this. I don't think anyone's trying to thinking break anyone's he's legs. A, thinking he's in England. I think people are trying to well, you know, make not, their presence felt to use a euphemism. Yeah, certainly on although there's some there's ways of behaving where you, it's it's kinda like I'm I'm going for the ball. And if your leg gets broken, well, you're in England, mate. Welcome to England. You know what I mean? It's like if you were to be speeding all around your neighborhood, Owen, speeding all over your neighborhood, drinking and driving, speeding all over your neighborhood, and you were to plow into somebody, you'd say, well, I didn't mean to do that. They, they would take you to the cleaners, big time. They'd say, be, they would say, you're drinking, driving, and speeding all over the, over the place, recklessly endangered my safety. So there's a recklessness to the tackle that Clearly. injured Tony, yeah. Obviously. But you're in England, aren't you? Well, you're not in England. But you're in England, and you get different challenges, don't you? So I'm sorry, but once again, it's a pass for Pep on the basis that this is just too much. This is just too obnoxious. Um, you know, Warnock gave an interview to the Daily Mail. I mean, he, this, this is obviously the, the day of the game because it was a Sunday. Mail on Sunday, I guess it would have been then. Is this but, about how he wants to be remembered? 
No. Uh, he just wants people chatting, wanker, wanker. Yeah, for, Warnick for is a wanker for a minute rather than a minute's silence. Rather than a minute's silence, um, which, which seems preemptive to me, to be honest. Uh, like preemptively saying, this is what I want. Those or oranges. that he would ever get a minute's silence today. Yeah. Those yeah. oranges at the bottom of the tree, I'll have those. Um, I didn't enjoy the Premier League, he said. Uh, this is when he was when he was with QPR. He didn't like the the affectations of the Premier League, you know, tweeting and as he says, uh, social media tweeting that it was belittling the manager. Players were going out at night with chairmen. I couldn't grasp that. Players and chairmen, <laughs> like with the QPR chairman, you mean? <laughs> Presumably Tony Fernandez. Uh, I suppose there are players involved in the street. There were players on fifty grand a week. Players that maybe I'd drop for a game. And they had the chairman's ear. Um, this is a man who thought that Man City... He, he reminisced about a giant killing he did against Man City when Man City were not exactly giants. I remember him Warwick was actually managing at the time. 90, 1991, this was. But he thought that Man City were like uh, metropolitan metrosexuals back in 1991 when Peter Reid was their manager. You know what I mean? So now... Uh, yeah. Look, it was... Um, it was uh, two two cultures. Do you want to get into in VAR or is that going to interrupt the flow of your news round too much, Ken? <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> nice work, Thanks, ah, thanks, no, thanks, nice work. Very yeah. fair. I mean, this is actually a very, a very good game between Liverpool and West Brom. Um, but it kind of... I mean, it was quite interesting just to watch because this, you hadn't seen this before, you know, in English football. What happens when there's loads and loads of appeals to this and so how it works. And... and I mean, it just doesn't work. Like, this is just not working. I mean, the Salah penalty, it's just, it's not a penalty. Come on. You know, it was like, how many, it just seems as though it's such a, 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 a I don't want to use the word soft, but it is. It's a, it's a soft thing to give a penalty for. You know, I, it's just the. I see that situation. You see that situation a lot. Is this now going to be a penalty? I think it is. There was a there was a controversial, um, one of the first big uh, VAR uh, controversies in Germany, which in Germany they've had it since the beginning of the season in the Bundesliga, was a similar type of thing, with um, Robert Lewandowski running past a Bayer Leverkusen defender and then going down as though the hand that the Leverkusen defender had draped across Lewandowski's enormous shoulder was going to actually do this. But, but Lewandowski just sort of went down in a, in a graceful way. And there was play on, like the referee didn't give anything. But then it's called back. And once it's called back, it's like, you kind of have to give it. If you bothered going to VAR to have a look at it, to be mm. or then you, you kind of feel sometimes they feel obliged in a 50-50 one, maybe like the Salah one was, to say, well, there's enough contact there. Yeah. Salah's was given, wasn't it? It was I'm given. I can't remember all the different VAR decisions. Oh, it was, it was yeah, given. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, the, the thing is that, okay, so the, fir the first use of it was to, was to disallow what would have been a third West Brom goal inside the first 25 minutes or so. Um, and this was a correctly disallowed goal for offside. But then just after that, this, this penalty was given. This, ah, penalty sort of out of nothing. You know, it was like... You know, obviously, West Brom managed... Like, Pardew was sort of interesting talking about it afterwards, and he was quite... He, he was in his presidential mode, Pardew, because they just won. Now, if they'd lost after he'd had two VAR calls against him, you might have got an even more unvarnished view from 
uh, from Pardew. As it was, it worked out well for him. But he made the point, well, you know, Kieran Gibbs got a hamstring injury because of the, like, four-minute wait. Maybe it was because of the fact he was standing around in the cold for doing nothing for four minutes while this kind of irrelevance to the game call was adjudicated and, and punished. Now, obviously, it's not really irrelevant to the game. I mean, there is an argument that it's a penalty, but it's kind of like it's they're not even on the ball. You know what I mean? We've seen a couple of uh, penalty decisions involving Liverpool recently. There was the uh, the Everton one. Um, was it Calvert-Lewin who was pushed by Dejan Lovren? You know, uh, a slight little push in the back, but it's a push. Calvert-Lewin has the ball. Lovren pushes him in the back, goes over easily, penalty. Same thing uh, with the return match between Liverpool and, or the FA Cup match. Lallana got a, got a very weak penalty um, for being kind of brushed over by Holgate. Again, though, he was on the ball. This, like, Salah's nowhere near the ball. You know, it's not even, it's not even really, is that, is that really going to be a penalty now? I guess it, I guess it will be. Um, but, you know, there was all of these, uh, there was all of these sort of stoppages. Uh, and in the end, you're not even sure if you're getting the right results. I mean, looking at it, say, in, in Italy and Germany where they've had it, this has been an interesting feature of, of uh, the fact that the VAR decisions are frequently wrong. <laughs> so... Um, so the statistics from the first half of the season in, in Italy um, were 60 corrections, 60 decisions which were changed due to VAR, of which 11 were later determined to be wrong, the wrong decision. This is the issue I have with this whole thing, though. How do they even determine that 11 of those were definitely wrong? I mean, there were there, so many of the types of decisions yeah. that are subjective. You're saying one thing about... Uh, and two different referees will have two different interpretations mm. of the Salah incident. Yeah, Sal- Salah's looking for that, clearly. He's never going to get there. He's, he's gone down, yeah. is one interpretation. The other one is, oh, he's been held back. You know, we've got to stop. We've got to stamp this out of the game. It's a penalty. Yeah, and that ties into my biggest issue with regards to the time. Right, so Pardew and others, a lot of the analysis over the weekend was Klopp as well said teething problems. It, it took some time, but, you know... Uh, I'm sure they'll iron all that out. But they won't because stuff like Salah's, the subjective decisions always take a long time to mull over. And I know you said that the NFL example is the best one to follow, Mm. which it probably is in terms of the coaches being in charge of whether or not they want to throw a flag essentially and Mm. have something looked at. They get one or two per game and then that's it. Uh, and, and you kind of move on on that basis. But even even there in the playoffs, there have been a lot of people kicking up a fuss about how long this takes, how it goes over to an office in New York, you know, miles away from the game, and they make the decision. So even there, it can take ages, and there's people in the NFL in a game that has no flow to begin with yeah. saying, this is interrupting the flow too much. Yeah. So I, 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 do, I don't know if it's irreconcilable. If they're going to continue to use it for decisions like penalty, subjective decisions, there's no way you can do it quickly. Yeah. There are too, there are too many... Uh, there are too many calls, but the problem is that once you have the ability to check your decisions, you want to do it all the time. You don't want to be the referee who lets something dubious go only to find out later that you've missed the big scandal. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. You, so, so the the it's like oh, just to be sure, we better have a look at that because you've made two big mistakes there. If you miss the scandal in the first place and then refuse to go and look at it when yeah. there might have been some evidence, then you're really going to get hung up. The idea of clear and obvious errors. I mean, this is this is what what IFAB are the are the FIFA body that make the rules for football, International Football Association Board, and they 
they put they put out the VAR thing at the start of the season and said, okay, if football associations are welcome to test this system as they see fit in whatever competition. So in Germany and Italy, they brought it into the league immediately. In England, obviously, they're doing it in cups. Um, but what they what they their guideline was it's to be they they want obviously all the control to be in the hands of the referee or the or the VAR who's also a referee but he's like a subordinate referee to the main referee so there's two ways it can happen number one the referee says can we have a look at that number two the VAR suggests you might want to have a look at that mm-hmm. now you're how often referees are going to ignore a voice in their ear saying you might want to have a look at that i can't imagine it's it's that often, although I don't know. I don't know what the statistics are in terms of maybe they're overruling them all the time, but I, but I'm not sure about that. It seems once you've one, once you've allowed it, then why wouldn't you check it? Yeah. And the other thing is that it, their their guideline is it, this is only to be used in the case of clear problems, you know, cl- uh, clear and obvious uh, uh, sort of. But the thing is, these these things aren't clear and obvious. If they were, then the referee would just get them right. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? A- any situation which is which a referee gets wrong, you know, if he's seen it at all, must be in some way, you know, hard to interpret. You know, it's kind of in, integral to the to the problem here. If, you, if you've got a decision that the referee has called wrong, oftentimes it looks... He, he's he's, well, there are, there he's are called decisions. it as he thinks he's seen it. Yeah, well, there are decisions where you can be... where it can be clear and obvious and it the referee just get, gets it wrong. You know, there, there was that handball for Swansea where he gave a penalty against Swansea. Well, it was, the game involved Swansea anyway, whether they were in favour, whether they were the beneficiaries or otherwise. Them. But, uh, you know, a hand goes up at a corner. The ball, you can see that the ball hits a hand. Referee gives a penalty, but it turns out that it was actually the attacking team at the corner mm. uh, who committed the handball. I mean, like, there are decisions like that where it is clear and obvious. But, as you said... 95% of penalty decisions are not obvious. Mm. Well, you know, I'd, say, or, I'd say 50%. I mean, there's a good, there's a lot of them which are, mm, I'm not sure. Like, you can imagine some referees saying that's a penalty and some saying, yeah, oh, no, I don't think so. Sorry, but uh, yeah, like 95% of the penalty decisions are, you know, are, they're either, they're impossible. The, the VAR isn't going to tell you a whole lot more than what the referee has seen because yeah. it's, you know, was there, you know, full-blooded contact there? Did he get a nick of the butt? Like, there's always going to be, as you say, that grey area instead of it just being a plainly obvious right and wrong penalty decision. Yeah. So so, so the whole idea of a clear and obvious error as being the, the point at which you get involved is is kind of silly because it's just not that cut and dried. Once, you put, once, once the onus is on the referee to involve this system... Then he's going to do it all the time, because the referee's only interest is in not getting monstered in tomorrow's press. You know, as as the guy who who killed football, the ref who killed football. You know, by missing some obvious thing that he could have called in. So they're just going to call it all the time, which which just seems to me like another reason um, to make to put to make it the responsibility of managers. They're the ones who call it in. If it's not clear and obvious enough for them to spot and have a big problem with, then why should the rest of us be wasting our time l- reviewing this nonsense? So one challenge per manager per match. Two, maybe. I mean, well, two, but two each. And if they also get to keep, as it happens in the NFL, I think keep a challenge if it's successful it means mm. you could end up having five or six challenges. So yeah, yeah. Well, you had eight the other day. The the Liverpool West Brom. Yeah, but that's too many. I think that's what we're saying. Oh yeah. Surely there's got to be a cap of. Uh, 
maybe some total of two or four, or some reasonably manageable number. Yeah, well, four, four seems like a good number to me. I mean, the point is that that like there, there are there are these things, and certainly when you look at the dr- dramatically differing ways that managers behave or the way they react to decisions, you can see that every decision is potential point of con- uh, contention. But so so there has to be some way of limiting the numbers. Limited to they they're allowed to decide when they involve it. I mean, I, I put this on Twitter and just to see what people were saying. Loads of people were immediately mentioning Jose Mourinho. What, 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 in what evil way will Mourinho use this power if it is placed oh, of course. in his hands? Will, well, absolutely. You will get managers using it tactically. I mean, it's, it's, should they do it in tennis? The, the final point of the Australian Open final, Roger Federer wins it and Silic decides he made it, might as well throw a challenge at it <laughs> at the final serve, which was clearly in or out. I can't remember who hit it at this stage. It was clearly Roger Federer's point but that that end was slightly stymied by the very quick video referral. And Federer himself had done it earlier in the set where he was trying to buy some time and he was struggling. And he it was a completely flippant um, challenge that he went for. He knew like, he could not have thought that he was going to be successful, and yet he threw it in there. So if they do it in tennis, Ken, I'm sure there's no reason they won't, they won't do it in football and just use these either tactically or flippantly. Yeah, I mean the 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 argument is there that clearly uh, a Mourinho-like coach. There's no reason why it should just be him. It could be any manager. I mean, imagine Diego Simeone with this power, um, and what they would do to the game. I mean, this is a man who 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 you know brazenly marched onto the field in a Champions League final to attack one of the opposing players and was sent off. <laughs> you know, he doesn't care. Diego Simeone doesn't care. Um, but. But you know, okay, if you're only allowed two per match, then you're, then you're talking about frivolously wasting, uh, wasting uh, the opportunity to dispute a mistake against your team. If you want to slow the game down at some point, and the game is being broken up anyway, this is the point. This is this is happening at random moments, which are bad for the game, or you know, they can be they're good for one side and bad for another side. I mean, who was it? One of the match of the day pundits, I think, made the point, or maybe it was on BT Sport that. Oh, these VAO calls have been very bad for Liverpool, actually. They've been disrupting the momentum. And I thought, well, hang on, they both gone in their favour. I mean, one of them disallowed a goal that was going against them. One of them gave them a penalty. I would have thought <laughs> that was a fair exchange for whatever momentum they'd got going at that point. But but the point that this pundit was, maybe it was Danny Murphy, I'm not sure. The, the pundit was making the point, no, they were going well, and, and this kind of knocked the stuffing out of them. You know, having all these decisions just given to them on a plate, they didn't know, didn't know what to do. They lost their rhythm. And that's the stuffing out of the crowd. And I think, I know I'm not adding anything to the conversation, but the point has been made a thousand times. But if the crowd don't know what's going on, it makes the atmosphere come across really strangely watching it on TV. It's just this weird, everyone just bored. You're just watching thousands, 40, 50,000 really bored people for about three or four minutes. And yeah. then a decision gets made. And, and bizarrely, on. like texting people at home to see whether the, what the decision looks like because they can't see it yeah I mean, it's utterly bizarre that you that the i mean the crowd aren't going to be disinterested if the incident keeps getting replayed on a big screen so that they can make their own mind up about whether their team is getting screwed or not yeah. i mean that's the most ridiculous thing of all in a lot of ways oh yeah that like whatever bit of theater there is is taken out of it as well and the referee is the only person on the ground who can actually see the see the the decision or not the crowd at, at Anfield, I mean, three and a half thousand man hours were wasted waiting for that penalty against Salah. Three and a half thousand? Well, there was, you know, 55,000 people at the match. All of them have to wait four minutes. <laughs> that's three. That's two man years of, of labor. It's a lot of productivity loss there. Yeah, it's a Liverpool. two man year productivity loss to the economy. Um, 
that that we had to wait for that for that most all. I mean, people have different opinions. Like, does someone Paul Gargan tweets me and say it's a ridiculous idea to involve the coach in any way? The application of the rules and decisions are the sole responsibility of the referees. May as well use a cheerometer and ask the crowd to shout VR really loudly if they want to review. Well, no. I mean, the coach is a participant. You know, it's 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 about the helping the participants feel as though they are not being screwed by mistakes. That's the point of this. So allow them to choose when they feel they've been particularly screwed and object at those moments and see if there's, there's been a mistake. It's simple. You know, it's not about trying to correct every mistake because the whole thing is a mistake. Like the, the whole game is just a random series of events. There could be a mistake at any, at any moment. I mean, who knows? This, this all, this, it's too complicated. There's too much stuff going on. And if the onus is on the referee whose only interest is in getting every decision right, if the onus is on him to involve it, then it's going to be involved all the time. Whereas the onus is on the managers then a limited number of times, then okay. And then Miguel made the point to me, um, I, 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 I don't like the idea, say if you had this limited challenge system, um, you only had two, and say you used up your two, and then in the last minute you have a, a hand of God goal given against you. Or, you know, something, some egregious injustice happens and you're the victim of it and you can't appeal because you've used up all your challenges and he says I th- he thinks that would be terrible <laughs> like I I can't see the problem with that well, actually your problem because you've you've <laughs> already used some you're in your in the NFL model you're talking about keeping your challenges if you're successful with the challenge if you're correct so you you would still have that if you've correctly called the challenges earlier on if you're that convinced then you still have the call at the and end you could have you I could, would be concerned about how many calls get made overall there I think you do have to limit it even within that story. Uh, yeah, personally dislike the idea or potential of an obviously wrong call deciding game just because a manager has used up all his calls is what Miguel said. I'm like, yeah, but imagine imagine the manager had been putting in those Roger Federer calls. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's a disincentive to do that sort of thing. The, the NFL does have the disincentive of losing a timeout. So maybe that is, maybe you would need to work in some disincentive to just throw in a call because you want to slow yeah. the game down. Go down to 10 men or something, you know. So you really spice it up. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. I also like that idea of the fans having one VAR call per match. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. <laughs> if it hits uh, yeah. a certain noise level, yeah, a certain yeah. decibel level, that's a VAR request review. So where are we now? Um, oh, story there. the Tottenham... Um, Tottenham played Newport and only drew one all. And yeah, Potter Gammond. Irishman among the goals again. Didn't go great. Um, but then there was this hilariously um, scathing uh, report on Tottenham from uh, from Newport, which which emerged where Newport County s- sit in judgment on all Spurs' failings, both collective and individual. <laughs> what is it? A scouting report? Um, yeah, like a scouting report, which is very scathing. I mean, they they talk about the the style overview, um, you know, played a high tempo. Everything's done at a real zip. They're very fluent in open play. Um, for all the possession, they only scored off a set play and only created a couple of clear cut chances. Strengths: they uh, pile seven players into the box to attack superb set play deliveries of Davis. Um, strong aerial threat, fluency of Sissoko, Ali, and Song. Work rate and finishing of Kane. Blah blah blah. But weaknesses: lack of understanding between the right back Aurier and Sanchez. Space in between Aurier and Sanchez, and uh, Sanchez do- doesn't cover the space left very well. Aurier commits himself too early in challenges, can be easily rolled or turned. Aurier gets too tight to his opponent and can see his needless fouls. 
Sissoko doesn't protect Aurier too well at times. Goalkeeper Vorm, small in stature, won't come for crosses. Vorm gets boxed in at defensive corners. They didn't defend wide free kicks well. Ali didn't track back when he lost the ball. Substitute Lamella didn't recover quickly and exposed Davis. Dembella gives away too many free kicks. Dyer is one-paced. Son and Ali, not physical in tackles. What? Son and Ali, not physical in tackles. Sounds like an old Sunday league team that we all would have played for back in the day. Uh, Tottenham were too reliant on Kane to score their goals. Pressed them quickly, closing down for the front and stopped their build-up play. Too easy. One paced Dyer. Uh, yeah, pretty good. Uh, also, on Lamella, what was it the thing about Lamella? Um, replaced Son after 70 minutes. Adds better balance as he left-footed. Lacks any passion or drive and doesn't like to tackle or be tackled. Largely ineffective and was poor defensively down that flank, exposing Davis, which Southampton nearly took advantage of. Wow. I don't know how um, Eric Lamel has been codding Mauricio Pochettino all this time <laughs> to have a career at that level, but just, just goes to show. The mouse that roared uh, Newport County, maybe they'll expose some of those weaknesses in, their, in the uh, return game. That's it for today's report on sport. Chief, you don't got this out with mother, will. You're away, mate. Your bags in your desk, boom. Your bags in your desk, boom. I mean, I'm fucking raging, speaking from my heart. Who would I want in? I'd get my Terry Butcher in. Mr. Tate, how you doing? Not too good after tonight. You got the job on the technicality of a legend who recommended you. Take no beat, take no beat, take no, take no, take no beat. Just so soft, don't try to get so deep. You know me, but I can't yell me. I can't yell me. I can't yell me. I can't yell, can't yell, can't yell me. You have lost the fans tonight. You don't deserve the fans. What's it, your fans? Just need to fucking work, wouldn't it? You are nothing, you are a fool, and you are a waste of time. Good night. Oh, the gun is booked out of stuff. Get out, get out! biggest fool in Manchester. Well, it looks like Arsenal are finally going to fork out the necessary cash to sign Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang from Dortmund. Around 63 million euro is a basic fee that we're hearing. Raphael Honigstein, does that sound like a fair price to you? Yes, I think it's still rather cheap for a player and strike of his quality. I think Dortmund wanted a minimum of 70 million euro. And of course, it might still get there with added bonuses, etc. But it reflects, of course, the realities that uh, he's pushed them very hard for this exit. And Dortmund are slightly reluctant sellers because it's happening in January and they really would have much preferred to sell them in the summer. So would you put this down then as a victory for Arsenal's um, tight wad negotiation tactics? I, I saw you, you compared it recently to the deal for Granit Xhaka, where Arsenal were persistently lowballing only, only to eventually pay out uh, the full whack, but it may be, maybe this time it's um, paid off for them. Well, I'm not sure. I think we'll have to look at the small print. I think it might still get very close to the 70 million euros that Dortmund quoted all along, and they could have maybe done that two weeks earlier. Um, but uh, you can understand Arsenal trying to, to get the best possible deal. They perhaps one didn't feel that much pressure to sign them early because Arsenal weren't in the FA Cup and uh, perhaps they feel you know Swansea is is not necessarily a must uh, a must game as far as his inclusion is concerned. So they seem to be pretty relaxed about the timeline. Dortmund, I think, would have been happier to solve all this much earlier because it's proved a huge distraction and he's made himself very unpopular in the dressing room. Uh, Obama Young was just pushing just a little bit too too transparently. I think um, you know there's there's ways of doing it. If you ride roughshod over the interests of your own teammates and the manner that he has done, um, it was almost a point of no return had been reached. Well, can you talk to us a bit more about 
what exactly he's done because it, it is notable that no one else is in for him. And I know from what you've said already, it's clear that you think he is a top player. You know, in terms of what he can do in the field, he, he's outstanding. There, there are not many better than him around Europe. But what has been so um, terrible about his behaviour that Dortmund feel they have no option but to let him go at this point? And kind of how long has that been... Uh, you know, has that been sort of associated with Aubameyang? I mean, to be honest, I wasn't really aware of any um, reputational or behavioural problems with him uh, until this season. Yeah, I mean, you might remember that he missed the Champions League game under Thomas Tuchel where he was suspended because he'd gone to Milan uh, during the week to party, which wasn't well received. Um, That was last season. And there's been incidents like this before where it just didn't turn up or wasn't on time. Punctuality is a big thing in Germany, uh, especially with football clubs. And even then, uh, it wasn't so much a case of being late and forgetting your date, but his behavior recently had changed, whereas before he would be very apologetic and say, yeah, I'm really sorry, you know, I wasn't aware of this. Now, um, I heard some stories that he basically just said, you know what, just find me. I don't care anymore. And I think at that point, you lose the respect of, of the people that you work with and uh, also the team members because they feel that he was no longer interested. And then the worst thing he's really done after um, a training camp in Malaga that was spent in Mabea, that was spent most of it on the team talking about the need for togetherness and, and being a much closer unit. They had a team meeting scheduled just before the first game and second of the season where it was all about togetherness and who didn't turn up? Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. So that was, I think, the final the final straw for, for Dortmund. As far as no one else being interested in him, I think what's happened here is that when he had a big market last year with Manchester City, they weren't quite prepared to pay 70 million euros then they decided to go for Gabriel Jesus for half the money instead when um, this this summer uh, big Premier League teams like Chelsea like Man United were looking for big number nines they prefer target man both Conte and Mourinho didn't like the kind of striker that uh, Obama represents and I think it's only a few clubs if you look around you know top European football who don't want a proper old school number nine but prefer some kind of fast guy who sits on the shoulder who runs into channels rather than holding up the ball so you need to play in a specific way and I think Arsenal is the perfect club for him because of course they play like that they don't necessarily play very direct long balls up front they're happier to just uh, have a slower build up and then just look for those little diagonal runs into the box where he's so good at Can you delve into that a little bit more the type of striker that he is Rafa because I seem to recall in your book about Jurgen Klopp that Klopp didn't think he would really cut it as a number 9 yeah, that's correct. There was a bit of a bone of uh, contention between Klopp and Sven Mislintat, the uh, now Arsenal scout, that Klopp felt he was better on the wings. Um, and he, of course, played him um, wide of uh, Immobile, who was a striker, didn't work out at all at Dortmund. And Dortmund as a club, uh, certainly Mislintat was convinced that he was a proper number nine. Um, and he only really came to the fore once Thomas Tuchel took over, took over, and that's when he started scoring an unbelievable amount of uh, of goals. Um, there is there is this thing with him that I have to be honest with you. When he was signed from Dortmund from from Saint Etienne, he was the second best striker in France that year. I was surprised that Arsene Wenger wasn't inter- interested and instead bought Olivier Giroud because he was available for 
12 million pounds and all the attributes were of a typical Arsenal striker. I mean, Thierry Henry is a name that's perhaps being overused a little bit when it comes to comparing others. But he is that type of striker, that converted winger that cuts inside, that is really quick. And I was surprised that he didn't go for him earlier, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, it is. Well, if you said 12 million uh, was what he's available for then, this means it's another very profitable deal for Borussia Dortmund. And uh, they were the focus of an admiring profile in the Financial Times recently where um, the, the, the FT were talking about uh, the Borussia Dortmund prodigy production line, um, which is some amount of hype there. Um, I wonder, though, what, where do you think Dortmund are at? I mean, they've, they've produced uh, evidence showing just how profitable it's been for them selling, particularly younger players. Um, but, but are they beginning to get a bit of a problem with the sort of culture of the club? I mean, it just... The issue that I have with what Dortmund are doing or what the FT described them as doing, you know, bring in cheap young talent, sort of improve them and sell them on at a big profit, is that this actually can work as a business model, but not if everybody knows that it's your business model. I mean, it becomes kind of impossible to keep a team together uh, for any sort of length of time. But a team that might actually win a trophy, a team that might achieve something together because everybody there is beginning with the assumption that they're only there for two years and then they're off to somewhere else. It has the kind of culture of the club eroded a little bit that they no longer quite believe in what they're doing while they're at Dortmund. I think that's exactly that's exactly a problem. They've become a slightly glorified version of Bayer Leverkusen uh, with better players and of course with a much bigger stadium and a much bigger club and, and a much better chance of winning stuff. But um, selling at least one big player is part of the business model, has been part of the business model going back to the mid Noughties when Hans-Joachim Watzke took over and, and tried to uh, get the finances of the club uh, on board. Um, they believe that if it's only one player a year, they can cope with it. Of course, Aubameyang now effectively makes it two players because Dembele was sold only this summer. Um, so there is a big blow. And you're absolutely right that there is a real danger that the kind of team spirit and um, the, the idea of a team itself is being hollowed out by that, by that process. At the same time, it's very difficult to to suggest or to think of an alternative to, to that route because, of course, they can sign lots of good, honest German pros in their mid-20s who might stay a bit longer, but that would probably not be a competitive way of doing business because they'd be very expensive. They'd be more probably at Bayern or, or Schalke or other clubs that they can't really buy from. And, of course, it doesn't really help them to sell them on later on. So they're stuck a little bit. They're doing exactly what's right for the balance sheet. And I don't think there's much alternative to it. But there is a real danger that there isn't really much of a, of a team left at the end of this. And I personally think the only way out of this is to have the kind of transformative manager that can, at least for two or three years, create that special environment where people want to stay a bit longer. Because it's not a new problem, you know, they've had that problem whenever, whenever they win anything, people come in for, for those players. But Jurgen Klopp was able to create that environment where people wanted to stick around a little bit longer. And I think they need that type of special bond that needs to be created. Uh, but right now, with managers changing every six months as well, 
uh, there isn't really that much stability. Klopp was busy getting knocked out of the FA Cup over the weekend. Yeah. Rafa, he, he was quick not to blame VAR. Well, he shouldn't have blamed VAR considering it came down on Liverpool's side on a couple of occasions. But he was—he seems to like it. He said, look, it's, it, it took a long time, but it's new. They're, these are probably just teething problems. It's been around in Germany a little longer since the start of the season. Are, is it as problematic there? Is it as confusing? Yes, it's, been, it's proved hugely problematic. When it was brought in, uh, people were very much in favour of it, including myself. Um, but I think they've been disappointed by the way it's been implemented and by all the things it's disrupted and it's taken away. Uh, yes, you get better um, decisions. Um, you look at all those decisions and they tend to be right. There have been the odd mistake as well, which is, of course, hugely annoying. But it, I think there is a sense that you've lost more than you've gained. Uh, yes, better decisions, but at the price of losing that immediacy, um, people always looking around, not really knowing what's going on, people in the, in the stadium completely left out of the conversation, and uh, and even small things like the offside lines not working properly uh, in the German version of VAR. So right now, it's... Um, it's been a good idea that's just been very badly implemented. I think if you were to ask sort of the ordinary punter on the street tomorrow, he'd probably say, you know what, it was a great idea, but it didn't really work. Let's get rid of it. Well, that, that sounds a bit extreme. I mean, could you not try to fix it? Yeah. <laughs> is there anything that could be done, in, in your opinion, having, having seen it for six months, is there anything obvious that can be done to improve the implementation? Well, I think the, the, the FA have been quite smart in waiting a little bit longer and, it's clear that even with all the problems so far, they've uh, tightened down, if you will, the rules of engagement. One of the early problems we've had in Germany is that clear and obvious mistakes were interpreted quite liberally by uh, the uh, video assistant referees sitting somewhere in Cologne, and they intervened far too often. And the other problem was that referees started second-guessing themselves far too often and running over to the monitor and basically re-refereeing their own decisions all the time. That's another thing that the German FA have now said, you know what, cut down on that. So, yes, things are being improved slightly, but I think it's just the overall um, impression that that justice that you have is perhaps a bit of an overkill. And maybe you should bring it down to more objective things. You know, is the ball really in and out? That's something that's proved hugely uncontroversial with the goal line technology because everyone can agree on that. When it comes to interpreting individual mistakes, fouls, handballs, etc., it's it hasn't been as smooth as anticipated. Perhaps people expected too much, but it's been so annoying at times that people think, you know what, do we really need all that? Um, and as I said, um, I think the ordinary fan would suggest no. And even 47% of Bundesliga pros said, you know what, let's let's uh, scrap the whole thing again. What about the ordinary football journalists, Rafael? I want your opinion. Are you still with it or are you against it now? I'm still with it, but I think they need to tighten the, their own um, implementation up much more. I think te- the technology isn't quite right yet and they need to really understand that this should be a last-ditch measure, not a way of of helping yourself to having another two or three opportunities to referee a situation during a game, because that clearly hasn't worked. So I think it's better now than it was a few months ago in Germany, but it's still not quite good enough. All right, Raphael Honigstein, brilliant stuff as always. Thank you. Pleasure. Just a crying big baby.
but you cannot call it a player a baby. Coach. and we never said they are baby. He's just a crying big baby and you cannot call him a player a baby. Let's go to the chase on Aubameyang, Ken. Mm-hmm. A good signing for Arsenal? Oh, I think he's a great signing, yeah. yeah. Absolutely, yeah. You don't, you don't think he's trouble with a capital T? No. We've, do, mean, we've done a few pieces on this at this stage. I think we've established that yeah. he has been a bit of trouble over the last year yeah. because he wanted to engineer a move. But in modern day football, that's kind of what happens. Yeah. And you, you should take his career up to that point during which there was no hint that there was any sort of bother. You know, I think, I think in a way, even if he was trouble, I'd sort of be interested to see that. A bit of trouble in Arsenal is no bad thing necessarily. I don't. I think it could be adaptive. You know, a little bit of of um, disruption, um, a slight, uh, an injection of a little bit of uh, edge to that dressing room. I mean, I do feel that he is a really top signing in terms of the quality. That he brings, and you know, if you look at uh, the last player at this level that they signed was was probably Ozil. Did he arrive? Ozil or Sanchez first? I'm, I can't. Maybe Ozil actually came the year before Sanchez. So Sanchez. Um, but you know, striker-wise, Lacazette is has been decent enough, but I don't think he's quite got the the kind of cutting edge that Aubameyang has. Giroud, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? Like this guy's on a different level from Giroud. So. I'm really interested to see how um, how it's how it's going to go, you know. I mean, it struck me that that Arsene Wenger didn't sound enthusiastic about this signing the last couple of times I've seen him talking about it. So it will be interesting. Maybe he's just going to be on the bench a bit. Maybe then there's going to be big trouble. Is it not just because maybe it's been dragging out a little bit? You might be excited about the player, but not necessarily about the mechanics of. Yeah, I also. I mean, as, as, as Raphael said, you know, why why didn't he go from in? This is exactly the kind of player that Wenger used to sign. Yeah, I think he signed Giroud the same. Did he sign Giroud at the same time? Maybe he signed Giroud a bit earlier. I don't know why I'm trying to. Should, maybe I should just got a list of Arsenal signings in calendar year that Chronicle they were made. Chronicle all the Arsenal signings. But you know, he, he's, year, he's, yeah. he's clearly been aware of this player for a long time. You know, and he could have moved for him at a much earlier point in his career, and, and he does like to do that. But clearly, Wenger felt at that point that he wasn't going to become mm-hmm. the kind of player that that he is, which is to say, you know, a four goals and five games striker, uh, and he's been doing that at an elite level. Um, yeah, you, you got to be excited about a sign like that. I'm sure Arsenal fans will take four goals in five games. If that's the ratio that he manages to come up with at the Emirates. Thanks very much, Ken. Thanks very much, Kieran. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you Thanks so Thank much you. for listening. See you again tomorrow if you're signed up. We're here all week. Which one is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those 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 boys. 
and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 